This is the Accidental Safety Pearl brought to you by HSI. This episode was recorded October 19th, 2023. My name is Jill James, HSI's Chief Safety Officer. And joining us today is Guillermo Sabatier. Guillermo is an electrical engineer and has worked in support of the utility industry for 30 years. Guillermo is a NERC system operator. NERC stands for North American Electric Reliability Corporation and is a Lean Six Sigma Green Belt. Guillermo is also a FEMA cert- is also FEMA certified on their incident command system. And today, Guillermo is Director of International Services at HSI. He's joining us from his home in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Welcome to the show, Guillermo. Well, thank you, Joe. That's a great introduction, and I really appreciate it. And thank you for having me. It's, it's, I've, I've been an avid listener to, to your podcast for quite a while now, so it's great to be here finally. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that so much. Well, so 30 years in support of the utility industry that's a long time. How did that, how did that start for you? And did you, you know, did you go about and earn your electrical engineering degree and just jump right in and then like safety and health presented itself or what did that look like? Well, that, that, that's a, that is an inter- interesting ride that they described there, but it's uh, the funny part was that it, it started as um, I was looking for a job, right. When I was starting college and then, okay. I applied to the uh, local utility, right, uh, in Florida, a very large vertically integrated utility, and I ended up getting a getting a job in something related to the field of of uh, e- electrical engineering, even if it was you know s- several steps removed. And I got a job as a meter reader. Oh wow! So yeah. you were in college and you got a meter reading job. Yeah. <laughs> and and so if I mean I'm I mean I want to believe. Most people know what meter reading is, but in case somebody doesn't, do you want to describe what that job is? Absolutely. And right now, mind you, the the technology has changed to the point where most of these meters are remotely read, right? Uh, they call it a, it's it's an AMI system, which, which is really, a, a, technology has improved. But back then, they were electromechanical devices, mm-hmm. and there was one in every home. And mm-hmm. you just had to walk to every single house and mm-hmm. read that meter, enter it on a on a handheld computer that you that you carried with you, and that was two, three, four, five hundred accounts every day. And you could be walking for four or five hours to sometimes up to eight hours out there. Oh, wow! So that was quite the calorie burn. <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow! I mean, so meter reading and letter carriers. Mm-hmm. Are the people that were at that time showing up at your house essentially a well meter reading happened what once a month to each address? Yes, yes. Yeah. That, that that took place once a month, and, and yeah. it, it was a certain time of the month. They call it a cycle day. Yeah, where it's usually twenty one days, right? But the rough part about meter reading is a lot of times these meters are in the rear of the houses. Yeah. So then you have to brave all kinds of things to get back there. You know, sometimes dogs, sometimes other strange or wildlife yeah so tell us tell us tell us about i mean yeah i i can't imagine when i just when i see letter carriers and and when i saw meter readers out and about i thought gosh this is a rough job health and safety wise what sort of what sort of hazards did you encounter well there was a usual like a step hazard right where you would imagine in florida being florida right every once in a while you'd have a storm and they're redoing all the roof all the roof material of, of the houses yeah and then usually you know some of the things that fall off the roof on, on onto the grass is usually those like tacks or those nails roofing oh yeah nails. uh-huh right? so one thing you always worry about is a step hazard so you're wearing mm-hmm. shoes to prevent that uh the other thing of course is the is the obvious uh dog attack that sort of thing so that there there was a pretty good amount of that uh every at least once a week you, you you'd have a good scare Oh my gosh! And, but again, there was a lot of training, and they give you a lot of personal protective equipment to to prevent that. Mm-hmm. And and you always learn not to take chances, right? So that's one of the things you learn. If if you if you can't if you can't get in because of the dog, you'd always kind of like um, you let the computer do the uh, the estimation, and then you move on to the next account. Wow! So what sort of training did you get regarding dogs, or how did? <laughs> yeah, I mean, how did you know? Like, oh. You know, oh crap! I need to, I need to mm. about face here and turn around. Well, that was a that was a very interesting transition because when you first start, usually it's you get like a week and a half, right? 
of mm-hmm. like uh, structured training. And, okay. and then eventually they send you out with someone who's a more experienced, uh, I guess, meter reader slash trainer. Mm-hmm. And, and really what it is at that point is that they're applying everything you learned in class. Mm-hmm. But in reality, it's, 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 uh, there was a lot of like veterinary, uh, veterinary produced videos and materials to mm-hmm. get you to understand what dog behavior is like. And in a lot of cases, right, you learned that a lot of that was fear and territorial behavior on some of these animals. Mm-hmm. So once you learned that, you were pretty much pretty good at you know, avoiding dog bites. And, and, and I did that job for five years, <laughs> and I was able to avoid dog bites. <laughs> so all that, while, while on the job, I mean, I got bitten once I left the job on my own at, at a party, but it's a different story. What? Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> so did you ever run into other things on your way to the meter besides, oh, yes. uh, yeah, like what, what else? Well, there was a couple of examples that come to mind. Um, mm-hmm. Down in the in Florida, there's, a, there's an area called the Redlands, which is more rural. Mm-hmm. And down there, of course, you've got your livestock where it's cattle and horses and that sort of thing. And so, so I, I remember, you know, kind of like, going into like a big, uh, a large property that, that was, that had like that, that white wooden fencing and I walk in there and, and about 40 steps in, then there's, there, there's a cow just gunning for me. So I kind of oh. like turned around <laughs> and kind of like ran back and I left and the cow just didn't want me in that, in that property. So like, all right, it's your property. And, uh, and okay. uh, went on to the next one. And another example, of course, this is totally unexpected. was somebody had an emu in a, in a suburban property. Oh my gosh. So, so the emu decided to just peck at my handheld computer for some reason and it wasn't really interested in me, but it's still a, still a surprise. Oh my gosh. <laughs> emu comes, comes emu. walking up to you. So yeah. you've been charged by a bovine, bovine? <laughs> pecked by an emu. An oh emu. my gosh. Wow. Okay. That sounds like an interesting job. So you did that throughout, throughout college. And I mean, what were you thinking about your career path at that at that point? Well, at that point, I really began to appreciate um, what the industry. So, so there, I began to understand the utility industry. Yeah, and I saw it from a distribution side, which means distribution is is, is the side the the last I guess call it the last few miles to serve the customer, right? Yeah, and 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 I got a really good taste of everything when I worked my very first hurricane restoration i mean i was there i started in october of 91 in that company and i think it was august of 92 was when we had that huge category five storm (laughs) andrew (laughs) that destroyed a lot of south florida and and, and that was very catastrophic but but as as far as a um a learning experience for me it was it, it was remarkable um and were you were you done with college by then, or oh, no. were you still okay? Oh, you're goodness, still no. okay. Yeah. Okay, you're still in the meter reading. Yeah. Yes. Sort of, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about that. What did you learn? Well, there, there, they they give you the most simple jobs, right? It's, as a meter reader, you ended up you know being a runner, but you also understood what all this hardware was for because you're learning it in school, right? So you, yeah. you're adding value to the whole process, and mm-hmm. and and. And you're seeing line crews, whether they're native from the company you work for, or they're coming in from other other areas to to to, uh, to support and help. Mm-hmm. You have to learn a whole lot more while you're doing the restoration process. Mm-hmm. So so for me, right, those three or four weeks, which which is my first restoration, was like the longest ever that most people had ever experienced, which I mm-hmm. thought it was interesting. Mm-hmm. But a lot of things, especially on safety, I, I got to tell you, it was really interesting and illuminating. That was my baseline. Mm-hmm. And then every storm after that, and Florida's known for its storms, I saw the changes on, on how they got better every year, every year with the safety practices. Yeah. And so when you're doing recovery work like that, what sort mm-hmm. of, I mean, I think it, in my mind, I'm just picturing the obvious hazards of lines down right. that are live and charged. What other, what other sort of hazards are there or is that the primary one? Well, that is that is a primary one. Usually, it's 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 um, having a line uh, a line that's fallen on the ground and is still energized. That, that's a very dangerous situation, mm-hmm. and especially when when you're when you're walking towards it. There's a thing they call step voltage, where mm-hmm. where for every step you take, right, the difference of potential between one step and one foot and the other becomes wor- um, becomes stronger and stronger as you get closer to that line. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that that are really um, 
we've made sure we understood that and and which is definitely a hazard. And the other thing, of course, at that point is just all the debris, right? Just stepping on mm-hmm. nails. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, traffic is, is another big, big problem because all the signs and traffic control systems are gone. Oh, wow. So that's a huge problem as well. Yeah. A, a lot of accidents uh, take place in that, but definitely a lot of step hazards. Hmm. Yeah. And, and so, well, I mean, I guess I want to hear what you noticed that's different over the years, mm. but maybe, maybe you want to continue your story of where you went next or what makes sense? Well, uh, uh, for me, let's touch on the whole uh, hurricane restoration and hurricane preparations part yeah. of the story and, yeah. and and because for me that's a very significant change in safety right okay. so one of the things that to me changed quite a bit was was the way they would prepare for storms in in a they will call it a dry run format which means that every every year a month or so before the season started right they began to run storm dry runs and it sounds redundant but what it is is it's their um they will basically prepare and they would create a scenario, and they would test out every system they had on a on a tabletop exercise, but with all the software that mm-hmm. came along with it. And and right now they've gotten to a point that is highly evolved, where they are able to even like simulate uh, what it's like to have a staging site, or what it's like to have crews and logistics behind it, even even all the tools and materials, right, to to get them properly staged, wow. to not just react in a fast in a in rapidly, but also do it all safely. Mm-hmm. One of the first changes I noticed, right, was the um, the personal protective equipment that everybody everybody got assigned, and everybody had training long before the storm season came. Mm-hmm. Uh, assigned your equipment, taught how to use your equipment, and then and then uh, making sure that that equipment was up to date because some of those things expire. So mm-hmm. that was the first thing I noticed, and then after that was the was a lot more training and a lot more training every year, and which which I'm glad I got. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, when, when you were going through and earning your degree, were, were your fellow students having this kind of field experience like you had? Was that common or was it unusual? It, I think it was unusual. Uh, the ones that were in school with me that also worked, worked for the same utility, uh, they had, they had very similar experiences, but it, they just so happened, I guess, luck, I guess, it just so happened that they were in different business units. So I was working with either meter reading or distribution. And then they were working for power generation, which is they working at the plants. Mm-hmm. Someone else was working customer service. So they, they would have a completely different experience because mm-hmm. you know they were getting training that was appropriate to their roles. Yeah. But, but, but I guess mine had the funniest stories. I imagine where we sat down <laughs> together to talk. <laughs> from, um, from the dogs and the emu and the bovine and yeah. Well, yeah, storm. Well. Yeah. Was there more? <laughs> Yeah, just uh, be, being out in the field restoring power after, in, in, in August. Florida, August weather is, is awfully hot, right? So you can imagine uh, oh. yeah, uh, trying to tr- trying to soothe customers and saying, yes, we're working really hard to get your power back. I understand. And, and that was another thing that changed dramatically, right? W- was like they said, don't um, – I remember at one point they said, don't, don't talk to any news crews or news media. Direct them out of corporate communications. Yeah. That was in, in the last few years of me being there that they really made that message uh, very clear to all the employees and and, uh, and for good reason, of course. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Guillermo, what drew you to wanting to get an electrical engineering degree to start with? <laughs> so you're going to laugh, okay. but uh, I started learning about electronics in high school. Okay. And it just so happened the high school I was in had a really good vocational program which you don't see a lot of anymore yeah. in a lot of school, high schools. So this vocational program had a whole lot of things. I mean, I, I, they have very strong academics, right? And, and, I, and I did the, all, all the required academics to be college-bound. But there was like a blue-collar aspect to it, I think you can call it. Or actually, it's the crafts aspect, right? Or applied learning. Yeah. And I went through like learning basic auto mechanics. I took some, of course, a wood shop. And, and then, of course, I took electronics and at that point i really enjoyed that that course and i decided to take you know two other courses uh, so I, I guess it was like 10th grade 11th and 12th and then learning a lot about electronics i really developed an interest for that hmm. so I, I decided at that point yeah i want to learn something in engineering mm-hmm. and and uh, with a good level of uh, guidance that was available at the time right i kind of figured out all right so i guess i can just jump into the uh, education system university system and take advantage of that and that's what i did so 
Wow, interesting. All right, so so you graduate. Then what happens with your career? Right before graduating with my undergrad in engineering, uh, I was working in distribution as a designer or service planner. Okay. Which is kind of like an enge- starting to understand more about engineering, but not really where I wanted to end up at the time. And then somebody catches wind of the fact that, hey, you're, you're a double E, and we need people in the field built to build substations. So then so, somebody really went out of their way uh, and, and he was a great mentor and, and he made it, he made it a point to make sure no, no one else hired me, but him. And I end up, I end up in the field as a protection and control engineer. And, and uh, from that point on, the career just took off in that direction. And so he, he made me, he had me working right a week and a half after graduation. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> right there and then it was immediate, right? I in fact I don't think I don't think I had a break now that I think about it. I graduated, I, I wrapped up work and distribution, and I started the following week in uh in in uh, in field engineering. It's a field engineer. So that was there was no break involved. <laughs> well, oh my gosh. Did you, well like, okay, so you had a consistent paycheck, so that's cool. Um but were you were you like a little bit freaked out? Like I just graduated oh, and now I'm in charge of some really important stuff. Well, that's interesting because at that point, now you have quite the steep learning curve in, uh, in, in that part of, in that field, right? Specifically, the, the uh, really engineering, or they call it protection and control engineering, or some places they call them system protection. Yeah. And, and now, but now you're working in a substation. So that in itself has a unique set of hazards, right? Uh, and maybe, maybe Guillermo, describe in case our listeners don't know what happens at a substation. Okay, a substation usually is a fence property, right? Okay. And in there, you're 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 taking transmission lines that are usually in very high voltage, either 138,000 volts, 230,000 volts, right? That's mm-hmm. a, that's coming in from a transmission system, mm-hmm. and there's a transformer there that steps that voltage down, mm-hmm. and then from there, it's it feeds. That's what feeds all your neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so these substations, right, typically are, are that's called a distribution substation. Mm-hmm. They also have transmission substations, and, and that's more larger, more involved, and those are more on a, in the transmission side. But the ones that I learned to work with originally were the, were the distribution stations. Mm-hmm. So in there, you know, you're, you're just a few feet away from like 138,000 volts, right? I mean, I'm sorry, 13,000 volts. Jeez. So, so, so you learn to, 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 to be aware and be mindful, right, of, of energized equipment not very far away from you. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and of course, like anything else, there's trip hazards there, too. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh, man. Always, always wearing a hard hat. Always wear a hard hat. Always wear a flame retardant shirt. Always wear um, steel toe boots, that sort of thing. So. Yeah. And, and I, when you, as, as you were getting that job and doing that work, what did safety look like at the at the utility at the time? Uh, you know, did they have someone dedicated, you know, to that job? And did you have um, training with everyone else? Or, you know, did they assume maybe you knew more because you're an electrical engineer? How does that work? Well, that was interesting because there they had um, they had a, a bargaining unit side, right, mm-hmm. which were the electrician. Then they had the, uh, I guess it's the... Uh, the, the engineers, right? Okay. And but everybody got the same training, which I thought was great because then you'd be in the same language, you speak in the same language. Yeah. And I did see several evolutions of that uh, in the years I was there, right? And mm-hmm. and and then and the campaigns would change names, but one thing that I noticed that was dramatically different was it went from like accepting one or two injuries a year to at some point saying we're we're going to work and strive towards zero injuries mm-hmm. no one's going to get injured mm-hmm. and that's our goal zero injuries mm-hmm. and and to me that that was, that was a huge paradigm shift in the entire philosophy of safety right because mm-hmm. it, just think about it nobody should be getting hurt especially especially in that industry yeah uh, yeah an injury there is often fatal or, or, or catastrophic yeah there's not a lot of room for mm-hmm. an oops mm-hmm. yeah Guillermo, you know, you, I said at the beginning, you've been working the utility industry for 30 years from a, and you mentioned personal protective equipment. When did arc rated clothing come in to play? Well, I, when I went to work at the the substations, they already had the flame retardant clothing. uh, Okay. For my level of work. So whenever you did something that involved switching equipment in or out of service, 
there you, you're putting on gloves, you're putting on a shirt, a flame retardant shirt. You're, mm -hmm. you're, you're always making sure you, the, the clothing you wear is, is flame retardant or at mm -hmm. least not, not synthetic, right? Mm -hmm. um, you're wearing, of course, a hard hat. You're wearing like uh, some sleeves. You, you're wearing something that goes on your hard hat, which is, is to prevent burning the back of your neck. And, mm -hmm. and of course, eye protection. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and that was something that, that, that you did while you're doing, using these, these sticks to switch out uh, equi equipment at the station. Yeah. Now, the, the substation electricians had additional layers of protection and, 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 and protocols because they actually would, would, would lay hands on some of the equipment. And when I say lay hands, meaning they're, they're, they're using rubber gloves and sleeves and that sort of thing because they're isolated or in, in a bucket truck. Yeah. So that's stuff that we wouldn't do, right? That's something that the electricians would do or the yeah. line workers would do. And they had a whole different level of, uh, of training and, and equipment and, and education regarding that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Very so, yeah. So what, what happened in your career next? And I'm, I'm, ex I'm interested as you continue to talk about, you know, how, how the safety culture changed and what you've observed over all this time, but what, what was your next stopping point? Well, from there, I, I went over to the power plants for, you know, for sh usually the nuclear plants for those refueling outages. And there, they have a very different sort of like uh, rigidly controlled documented protocols for everything you do. Okay. So, so that one in itself, now you have another element of, of, of a hazard there, which is, you know, radiological, mm. right? Mm -hmm. So, so there's those of us that will never set foot inside anywhere that's, you know, that has anything to do with, um, with radioactivity, but you're still trained and made aware of that. Yeah. Um, so for me, seeing that it's a whole different level of like, of, uh, of awareness in that regard. Right. And then, you know, there are certain places that you, you can walk, you, you have to follow certain lines as you're walking through the move, moving around the plant. Right. Uh, there's certain yellow lines and purple lines and blue lines. And, and, and these are there to make sure, you know, you, you don't get hit by like, say, say a forklift. Right. Uh -huh. So that's 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 one tool that you use to make sure that you know the forklift operator knows that they can't cross these lines because they, there could be a foot traffic on there, and then the foot traffic knows to stay stay on, on this path and don't wander off because you might get hit by by a vehicle. That was that was one example, right? Uh -huh. um, and then of course you know there were there were our own dangers dealing with uh, I guess switching in, in a confined space, right? In, the, in that regard, now you're worrying. We didn't do any switching, but we got trained on some of that, and 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 that level of PPE was different. Now they're wearing an entire suit that's flame retardant, and and it covers their whole body, and then they wear something over their head because now you're in a you're in a closed room doing the switching. Mm -hmm. Whereas my experience, you're outside, yeah. So open air, so a, a lot different. But but that's looking at the change from a perspective of you know of 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 a, a slightly a slightly different business unit. For the philosophy, for me, for me, I went from there to operations in the control center, and and, and there the the safety culture was. Now you're really working from an office, but even there, there's there's hazards that can happen in an office, and then the actions you take in there can affect people in the field. Yeah. So, so now, talk about talk about know. what a control center like. What are the responsibilities in a control center? Okay. okay well, a, a control center, uh, when it comes to uh, transmission, right. Um, you're you're oper you're operating your po your portion of the bulk electric system where uh, you're looking at all the power plants operating together. You're looking at all the high voltage transmission lines all tied together and how that operates and and, and that is run and maintained. Okay. And, and one of the important things on there is understanding that that you can operate a lot of these devices remotely. <laughs> so, right. So so with that one, right. You, the, there's no visibility physically of what's happening there, so you're relying a lot on 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 alarming and communications with people in the field. Okay. So, wow, and wow. it's very interesting work. So. Yeah, and I mean, and and I mean, you're describing this, and uh, this is this is probably not a very um, complimentary thing to say, but the first image that came to mind is Homer Simpson. Well, you know, Homer Simpson is more. The best description would be him at the nuclear plant. Yeah. Okay. Even though I would never categorize him that way, but but they're they're definitely strict. I mean, I have been working inside a control center in the nuclear plant. Okay. Uh, doing some maintenance on some relaying equipment. 
Okay. But, you know, it's very controlled how you go in and go out of there. But but the level of training, certification, interviewing, and, and, and the steps you got to go through to be qualified to even be allowed to set foot in there yeah. is, is, is rather significant. But in a control center, right, yeah. for the grid, it, it's it's you have a nice, big, comfortable room with a map board and you have um, hmm. uh, usually the lights are dim and because and, you're focusing on your screens, the map board. But it, it's it's many hours of sitting around and kind of making decisions with, you know, interrupted by, 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 by a few minutes of like, and like, of like stress a few times. But. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You had, you had mentioned when we, when we spoke uh, briefly about this piece of it, that people who work in the control centers, um, you pay attention to their circadian rhythms. Is that what well, I'm remembering correctly? Yeah. There, there was a study a while back, um, had to do with the fact that it was really human performance. Okay. And uh, part of that was error prevention. And one of the things that they had picked up from both the nuclear side and also the allied health or healthcare industry was that the majority of errors, I think back then, they were noticing a trend of uh, the tend to be more common, more commonly occurring between the hours of three and 5 PM and three and 5 AM for some Hmm. reason. Hmm. So, so they they uh, they were taking steps to mitigate that particular risk, but that's usually a time when those mistakes would happen the most often, especially yeah. on a twelve-hour shift. Somehow, um, one of the things that we did was we we stuck to an eight-hour shift most of the time. I mean, there were three shifts, right? But then when they tried the twelve-hour shift, we noticed some problems uh, like that beginning to occur. So they went back to that eventually. But um, yeah, and, and then the, the in Florida, of course, being Florida, right? If you do a twelve-hour shift, now you, you're gonna you're going to have an hour drive each way, an hour drive coming in in the morning, and an hour drive going home. Hmm. So now you're only getting maybe nine, ten hours of rest. So that's another factor, right? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, wow. And so were those um, those limiting limiting the hours to like an eight-hour shift where where you were was that driven by the by the unions by the company by both well um that was interesting that was really just in the particular control center that decision was made there okay uh and i was always i was always a supporter of eight-hour shifts Uh, i never i never really liked the 12-hour shift um practice because of the fact that the way they were scheduled they were too close together yeah. Uh, and but in in the power plants, in other control centers, and other areas, they would run twelve-hour shifts, and and if they're scheduled okay and you're properly conditioned to 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 endure them, then you do you do fine. But it, it didn't work well for us, and and for the most part, it, it's it was because you had a strong culture of eight-hour shifts, and that that eight-hour shift gives you more time every day. Uh, I guess with your family, right? Whereas a twelve-hour mm-hmm. shift, you're you're pretty much committed to just working and sleeping for like a one or two-week stretch. Yeah, yeah. So wow. that's that's where that changed, I yeah. guess. For us. So what what happened with your career next? I mean, I know that eventually you're getting into, you know, <laughs> you earned some FEMA certifications and some NERC certification. Yeah, what's yeah. going on? Yeah. Well, well, let's start with the NERC certification. There, sure. to 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 work in a control center, right? As an operator, you have to have a NERC certification, and and we at HSI do do quite a bit of like NERC test prep, uh, NERC test prep training, right? For 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 the industry in that regard. So okay. So that's definitely. Um, so, so in order to operate uh, in a in a control center for the book electric system, you have to have a NERC certification. Okay. So, so that's required. So that's, that that was one of my first steps into into this part of the industry already, and mm-hmm. and it was it was interesting because at the and and at that at that time, um, it, it was a very like for most people, it was a very scary, intimidating exam, right? But uh, like similar to someone taking their. Um, well, in the safety world, maybe taking their CSP, their Certified Safety Professionals exam, right. or right. a CPA, or right. RN taking a board. Okay. Right, mm-hmm. right. And the interesting thing here too is that this, um, they want you to once you get your sort of initial certification, they want you getting continuing education hours. So you have to get like two hundred hours every three years. Oh wow. So, so it's quite a bit of training to follow mm-hmm. up with that, right? Mm-hmm. And they, they don't want you just, you know, retaking the exam. They want you to, you know, to, to do your, your hours so you continue to be learning. Yeah. And, um, and so that, that was my first introduction into that. Now, of course, Florida being Florida, right? You have hurricanes every year. So mm-hmm. um, 
in order to fine tune the process, right, of how we did the uh, storm restoration and the associated training, you know, they began to apply a more structured approach on emergency preparedness, uh, crisis management, that sort of thing. So along with that, right, with FEMA, we all got our training. And, and mine were very basic, but it, I, I can certainly tell you how and who an incident commander is, and I can tell you how an incident command system works. Okay. So. So I, I definitely know, you know, who, who can tell you what to do in a, <laughs> in a command center. So, okay. so that, that was a really important thing to understand because then that, that, uh, that format is applied over and over again, right? In pretty much any incident mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. any disaster, right? Mm-hmm. So it was very, very helpful certification actually to get. And, and, uh, and that of course was applied every year. And, and every time we had like a hurricane or even a dry run, uh, it, it always followed the structure. Yeah, I mean, was that was that intriguing to you? It really was because I saw that the the whole the one example, the incident commander role, for example, yeah. that's it doesn't matter whether it's utilities doing storm restoration or it can be a city recovering from a from a flood or it can be uh, uh, any other community you know recovering from any disaster. That 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 structure is the same. Yeah. So everyone everyone knows who's in charge of what and who to talk to regarding you know what they need or or or, or how you can help or what your their responsibilities are yeah yeah so that was important yeah Guillermo how how long did you stay working directly in plants and then when did you make the switch into um, more education which I believe is what your role is today yeah. well yeah. for me once I went into the control centers um, I did that for five, four or five years. I think it was six years. Mm-hmm. And then eventually I got to work on the training side of, uh, of that utility. And they, they got me to work under, as, a, as a support role in the training program for all the operators. Like, remember when I mentioned earlier that they wanted you to maintain continu- 100 hours every yeah. three years? Yeah. So that whole process, it, it's, it's, a, it, it's a required process within pretty much every utility that they have a training program and a training group. Mm-hmm. So that's where I got involved in that. And then from that point on, it's training was, was always part of my career going forward. Hmm. Um, I, I guess I also enjoyed, I enjoyed delivering training. I enjoy teaching others and, and, and I enjoy sharing knowledge. So for me, that, that seemed like a natural fit that I happened to enjoy. But at the same time, uh, I got roped into compliance. Uh, okay. which is which is a whole other aspect and especially NERC regulatory compliance and I, I guess I'm one of the few people in, in, that actually enjoys that because it's 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 reading all, all of these standards and making sure the procedures and our processes fit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so so that by actually combines well with training because then you're able to teach others how to how to how to Read and interpret those regulations. Read and interpret those yeah. exactly, and yeah. not just that, but then like make sure they they operate within within those regulations, and more importantly, make sure you capture evidence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the paper trail, right? If you didn't yeah. if you didn't document it, you didn't do it. You didn't right? do it exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And so, where has your where has where has your career taken you? I mean, I'm guessing you know you're you're not necessarily working for one employer you know at that point in your career did you get to travel and experience and see lots of things uh within that particular like industry yes uh i got to i got to see quite a bit of different uh usually during during the 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 weird thing about storms is, is is that a lot of companies came to you to help you restore. So you got to experience oh. what all these other shops did, right? Yeah. Where there are crews coming in, you got to see how they were slightly different, how they did things. Some of them were better and you picked up those new practices from them. Yeah. Others you saw, ooh, they're still doing that. And then you, you, you kind of will coach them on, on how to improve their processes. Mm-hmm. But but for me, uh, I think it was mid-pandemic where, where I left that utility and I went to work for uh, what was then SOS Mm-hmm. which then you know, became part of HSI. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there I came in as a, as a director of international services because back then they were trying to expand their, their international division, right, on, on that particular part of the industry. Yeah. But, um, but, but for me, um, aside from just, from just uh, working, in, working in the utility, I, I also did quite a bit of traveling with conferences and workshops and seminars 
mm-hmm. and always get, getting getting that exposure and always engaged in that whole uh, professional development part of the business because you know if th- things are always changing, especially yeah. with technology. Yeah, Guillermo, when you got to, assuming you got to um, work with people in different climates, you know, you spent a big bulk of your career in Florida and Mm. hurricane response and seeing all that stuff. What was different when you got to work with organizations supporting, you know, Mm. other, other parts of the country where climate might come into play or did it? Was it, was it different in the way that people protected themselves? Well, my first exposure to something dramatically different was the fact that, you know, like was speaking to line workers that were working in areas that, that, that had like snow okay. and, and frost. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they, they were more concerned with heat in Florida because they're saying, well, you can only take off so many clothes before you're no longer safe to work. Right. Whereas in the cold weather, you can always put on, put on more stuff, uh-huh. insulation. And keep working and, and i thought about that and i was like wow you, you get to the point where you're so bulky you can't move your arms mm-hmm. but like no they've got they got ppe that is also rated for the cold weather that they're in to to, yeah. to protect their limbs you know and their ears and their noses and all that but but to me it was really interesting how how they can do that work and in, in, in freezing temperatures Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so, what I mean. You know, you, grew, you 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 grew up in Florida, and I grew up in Minnesota, and so I'm thinking of <laughs> gosh, you know, the differences between, you know, the voltage is the same, but the weather conditions are certainly oh, yeah. different. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. So, yes. yeah especially the the whole uh, handling of like a bare piece of metal, right? You just don't do that in cold weather. So. Yeah, <laughs> right. Interesting. With bare hands, anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, you know, you've, you've spoken, uh, just touched a little bit on, you know, total, total safety culture, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, kind of observations that you've had, what, what are you noticing or what have you noticed over these years? Well, one thing I've noticed is that, is that there's definitely a lot more attention to make sure n- not only do we have zero injuries, but we also are very aware of the near misses. Hmm. So, a near miss, right, just means you just happen to get lucky because that, that near miss was a, a hazardous condition that wasn't mitigated preemptively, yeah. right? So, so and that that is just as serious, if not more than an injury, because what happens there is like we all learn from an injury. Sadly, the injury happens; it's tragic, and 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 a lot of times avoidable. But but the near miss oftentimes doesn't get addressed. Yeah. And so that's something that I've noticed that they had, they were paying more attention to. Uh, they got pretty good with the whole z- zero injury approach, but then the next stage I think was uh, mm-hmm. a whole mm-hmm. taking care of those near misses. Yeah, Guillermo, how do how do the utility industry, you know, each and how do they work together, or do they work together to learn from one another, you know, across the country or across the globe? They certainly do. I mean, and there's a whole number of organizations and, and, and associations, right, that that are a part of that. OSHA's being one of them, of course. I mean, they, they have a certain a certain area that touches upon what the utility does. Mm-hmm. Uh, the IBEW, which is the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, is the unionized side of the business. They have a lot of they're 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 quite the stakeholders in, in that process as well. Um, every union contract usually involves a large part of it is safety. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, even the IEEE, right, which is the engineering side, yeah. the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers also has a say in that. And that's just three or four examples of a larger part of of, of many more. Mm-hmm. So, so definitely, there, there, there's a lot of knowledge sharing taking place and and a lot of procedure writing that happens based on all that. But quite a bit of benchmarking as well. I know that in NERC, they would they would talk they would do a lot of not, not NERC lessons learned for example a lot of that involved for example um, disturbances or human errors that cause an outage right but a lot of times right there was also a component to it that that involved a, a potential injury or a near miss and they would always address that and then the entire industry would see that mm-hmm. as as a lesson learned so mm-hmm. those are just a few examples of so many that I can think of. Yeah. Yeah. Guillermo, in the, in the time you've been doing this, you know, and you've come across and had training from different uh, environmental health and safety professionals and, you know, you've, you've seen them in action. What sort of 
skills are different. Maybe, you know, I'm, if people are listening and thinking, gosh, maybe, you know, maybe I'm new in this field. Maybe I want to dip my toe into working in, in this field. Um, are people who are doing the work of EHS in the utility industry have additional training and certifications like you do with NERC and things with FEMA? Or what do you know about, you know, how they approach their work? Okay, so let me think about that one. So if they are already in, in, in an EHS type of field, right? And they're yeah. they're interested in getting into the into the utility yeah. landscape. Um, in preparation to that, ah, uh, I think what I would expect is is probably to learn a little bit more on. I know that that FEMA has has an aspect to it that relates to utility work mm-hmm. and in restoration, right? And those mm-hmm. sorts of emergencies. Okay. Uh, one example that comes to mind is the whole wildfire situation in the in the western part of the country. Yeah. Where where the FEMA a, a large component of that, of that involves FEMA. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, hurricanes, for example, here it's really it's, it's being driven mostly by the utilities, right? At this point, but I think the wildfires over there it's that's taken a whole different mm. a whole different look because mm. now now it involves governments. It involves. Uh, Sadly, certain types of litigation, and and so so their their FEMA is more involved in that one as well. Mm. But but it looks different. But but it's still a a, a crisis management aspect, right? Yeah. Um, for w- another thing I could think of for an EHS professional getting into this industry really is is uh, be open to the idea that in the utility here you're going to more than likely get a lot of training uh, once you're already entering that role. Got it. So, so they, right there, they'll, they'll, they'll send you to training quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at, least, okay. at least what I've seen. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's great. That's great. Um, Guillermo, I know that you also do some, you know, your job is in education right now. Um, you also have a podcast where you're connecting and talking about education as well. Talk, tell us about that in case people are like, Hey, I'm working in the utility industry. I didn't know something like that existed, or maybe they want to get into it and hear more. What is what do you do with with your podcast? Well, th- this one actually is, is 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 a video podcast, right? And and it usually airs every two weeks. Okay. And and that one is more specific to 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 the electric utility industry and energy, right? Okay. And on that one, uh, one of the things that I, first of all, I love having guests on that because usually it's it's a guest brings this wealth of knowledge and experience and a new zeal to the, to the show that 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 educates all of us, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I really enjoy in that podcast, I think, is um, is talking about new technologies that are applied or they're about to be applied in our industry. And uh, for example, just the other day, they 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 were talking about um, small modular reactors and how those are, are making a comeback. But along with those, right, there's a whole other a whole other aspect of manufacturing, delivery, transportation, installation, mm-hmm. safety, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. So that on its own, right, it's 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 the expectation there was one example is that. Um, you know, whereas before you'd see one large nuclear plant, now you're going to see thousands of little ones. Mm-hmm. Well, that's something that that they're saying is is going to be could dramatically change our landscape, right? When it comes to mm-hmm. energy, and mm-hmm. also when when helping us get to that zero zero carbon emissions goal. Mm-hmm. So so from from that aspect, right? Uh, that, that that's something that that we're talking a lot about in that podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, another one, of course, as well is is the NERC preparation. I mean, that those videos get a lot of views. From 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 people that want, wanting to know more about what to expect on the NERC exam. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, in there, I just go over five or six questions. Now, I mean, I go I go in, in, into detail about them and why they answer them the way they do. But yeah, yeah, those, those yeah. got a lot of views. Yeah, what's the name of the podcast? Oh, sorry, okay. uh, it's it's on it's called Think Tech Hawaii, and that that's the uh, the platform. And then the uh, my particular show is called Perspectives on Energy. Perspectives on energy. Okay. And it's a funny story how I got involved in that. Yeah, please. <laughs> uh-huh. So so a while back, we were doing research on how some countries were getting away from deregulation and going back towards regulation, meaning mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in the old days, everything was vertically integrated and highly regulated, right? 
and then here here in Europe and here in Europe, they began to deregulate the industry, meaning that you could compete, right, for uh, different utilities. Utilities competed at different prices for 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 retail customers, hmm. and and that went great. But then you had the days of Enron, for example, that changed perspectives and all that, and and even now, right, we're we're seeing different things happen in certain markets. Mm-hmm. So in, in Mexico, uh, they they made a dramatic shift back towards regulation. To the point that they were now, um, I think, the discouraging foreign investment in, in, in independently owned power plants. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was I was asked to do some research about this and what that looks like internationally. And the only place I had an, an even an adequate discussion on what was happening was a, a video podcast from ThinkTech. So. Great it's like Hawaii. Mm-hmm. It's like Hawaii, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I, I went in there. I reached out to everybody involved. The, the CEO writes back, and then we have a conversation. He invites me on the show. He invites me on the show again, and I have another uh, on, on on his podcast because they they have the different shows right within ThinkTech, and it's like I think about 30, 40 shows in there. So <laughs> then he says, "Hey, you're you're great at doing this podcast thing. Why don't you have your own show?" And <laughs> <laughs> so okay. And then I ran it by my management here and they were like, sure, go ahead. And, and he says, you know, you can talk about everything relating to energy and, and, and the industry. I mean, you can even pr- promote HSI, you know, to a certain degree. Sure. And, and, and I've been doing it ever since. I think and how long eight. has that been? Yeah. Oh, Lord. I think I've been doing it since 2022. Wow. Yeah. Okay. okay. It's, it, it's been over a year now. So. Yeah, that's wonderful. And the and the videos you were talking about for um, NERC preparation is that something different than the podcast? That is no, that is in the same podcast. Same so way, okay. I right, so I I get to choose the topics. So whenever I don't have a guest or anything like that, I'll, I'll go ahead and do and go over some some sample questions from the sure. exam. Mm-hmm. And and oddly enough, those get a lot of views. I mean, one of them has like nine hundred views. Wow. One of those videos. Yeah. Wow. So. Yeah. Gosh, I mean, I'm super curious. Like, how many people are walking around with NERC certifications now? <laughs> I mean, I'm not expecting you to answer that question, but it sounds like a, you know, there's a lot of people that need it to be able to to work in support of the utility industry. I think it's it's several thousand several thousand people are, are certified at this time. Uh, um, the 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 pass rate for that exam is about. Um, Sixty-three percent. Oh wow! Which is not which is not high, right? Yeah. And then and then when they go through a preparation program like the one we offer, I think that number goes up to about 80, 85 Wow. Success rate. So it is significant, right? But but it's definitely um it's a very intimidating exam. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not cheap to take. It's about seven hundred dollars now, from what I understand. Wow. And, and and it is you know it's it's required to work right so in mean, a lot of a lot of cases right these folks they get hired to be an operator and then you know, part of the condition of staying employed there is to pass the exam so they're given a couple of chances but eventually you know they they end up going back to where they came from wow. if they if, if they have enough enough failed failed attempts I guess how long does it take someone to take the exam is it like a several hour exam yes so yeah. that is a two and a half hour exam it's a 120 questions okay and uh, the preparation takes i think several weeks mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. interesting interesting yeah yeah guillermo what else would you like to share about working in the utility industry and things that you've learned things that you've seen i've seen a lot of change and one of the most significant thing changes that i've seen happen over the last four to five years has been this growth of renewables yeah. and a, a lot of it is driven by by how we're addressing climate change and how we're addressing carbon emissions right and what i've noticed is that is that initially engineers utility professionals were not even at the table when when it came to make policy or policy makers right when they were mandating all these like you you will have x amount of megawatts to be to be renewable or wind and solar Mm-hmm. And and then and then a few years later they 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 understood the, the the trouble that can cause right if you didn't if you didn't do it correctly, so so now now I'm noticing these uh the engineers are finally at the table and helping make this transition a more controlled transition, mm-hmm. and so for me that's been that's been one of the great changes I think in that regard, mm-hmm. I mean, 
going from what they had before to more renewables to now going through a more controlled approach when it comes to moving towards that 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 carbon carbon free goal yeah and is that something that you're seeing um you know nation by nation doing or is there an is there a global Mm. effort sadly i'm noticing it it differs by nation it differs by governments right Mm -hmm. and and in some cases uh, for for us we're you know we're making great progress making great progress in europe but we also saw what could happen when that's weaponized against you right we just saw what happened in, in Western Europe with this whole Ukraine crisis, where they they made a transition towards renewables. They shut down a lot of their a lot of their nuclear and, and they shut down their coal. They were completely dependent on gas coming in from Russia. Well, that that you know that had a price. Mm. Uh, not having that variety, right, and, yep. in their portfolio. Um, France, for example, I think it's eighty percent of their portfolio is nuclear. So for them, they had that flexibility, but at the same time, right, they're dependent on, on sourcing their fuel out of Africa. So when they, so, so a lot of geopolitical things happen, right? Um, the other thing is emerging markets where it's like Latin America, Africa, and other parts of the world. For, for every coal plant that we shut down here in the U.S., they, they crank up four or five new ones. <laughs> wow. Right, and, and right, in, in Latin America and, and other parts of the world. So, so that in itself is, is an interesting problem, right? Because so, how do you address that? I mean, that's proven technology that that's cost effective and reliable, and 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 they're they're commissioning brand new ones in these places. So that's one of the thing, one of the challenges I think we see in our industry is in that regard. Yeah. And those are some of the things that you talk about in your podcast too. I'm mm-hmm. guessing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Wow! Wonderful! Wonderful! Well, Guillermo, I really appreciate you taking time with us today. Really appreciate it. Well, Joe, thank you so much for having me. And and uh, you know, you're not kidding. This hour, this this time flies by. <laughs> well, it's fun, and it's fun to learn, and it's fun to learn from someone like you. And I'm not sure if we've had an electrical engineer on the show before, but my gosh, I really appreciate your perspective wow. <laughs> and the and the work that you do to support all of us being able to turn the lights on every day. Well, Joe, thank you for having me. And it's always it's it's always great to share knowledge and experience and 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 just to uh, and just to be be able to um, to just lend a perspective, right? That that's yeah. that's that's unusual. So yeah. definitely, always a pleasure. And and then I. And then uh, I've got to invite you to my show now. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd love to. I'd love to. I don't know how much I can help uh, the the utility industry, but um, but I'd be happy to talk. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. And thank you all for spending your time listening today. And more importantly, thank you for your contribution toward the common good. May our employees and those we influence know that our profession cares deeply about human well-being, which is the core of our practice. If you aren't subscribed and want to hear past and future episodes, you can subscribe in iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, or any other podcast player you'd like. We'd love it if you could leave a rating and review us on iTunes. It really helps us connect the show with more and more health and safety professionals. Special thanks to Emily Gould, our podcast producer. And until next time, thanks for listening.